0: Guys, sorry. Thank you for allowing me. All right, guys, so today's uh, talk will focus on uh, a lot of the political fallout, uh, reaction to immigration, uh, things going on during the 1920s. In a lot of ways, when I open with this stuff, I talk, you know, it's kind of like the ugly side of the 1920s um, that we, we see, right? And instead of maybe the cultural stuff and the economic stuff. So, in this first slide, uh, fear of radicalism, uh, I think I had touched on this uh, before at the end of World War One, briefly. But uh, in the early, in about 1920, there's an attorney general, right, kind of the lead lawyer, one of the lead, you know, politicians for the nation named Mitchell Palmer. And Palmer has this crazy situation where his home is targeted by uh, a a kind of either an individual or a group, I'm not sure we even know, and a, a homemade bomb is sent to his house. Now, no one is injured, thank God, but what Palmer goes on to do for the next year or so is sometimes called the Red Scare, and it highlights a lot of the feelings after World War I about foreigners, about immigrants, about uh, radicalism. And when we say radicalism, like basically there's this real tangible fear of anybody who could potentially be a communist or be an anarchist, and especially after what happened with Russia, right, Russia falling to communism and be reemerging as the Soviet Union um, around that same time. So Palmer goes on this kind of crazy crusade for the next year or so, where he's deporting hundreds if not a few thousand people uh, with very little uh, due process, right? Y'all know what due process is? What does it mean, right? If you or I or anybody is arrested, what is due process? Anyone? No one knows due process? Good to know, just good to know your rights, right? Someone could read the chat real quick, just so about the back up. Marco said right to trial, yeah, that's part of it absolutely right there's There's a bunch of kind of minutia to it or other details, but yeah, that like your basic rights, if you ever get kind of accused of a crime or apprehended and all that, well, Palmer doesn't really follow this uh he's deporting people with very, very little, if any circumstantial evidence and stuff like that so we this is kind of known as one of the big witch hunts in u s history where You know, all this anti-immigrant sentiment and the feelings after World War I kind of coalesce to this, you know, year or so of crazy activity and paranoia on the part of the attorney general. And this is something that's a really strong part of the 1920s and is a continuous theme, as we'll see uh, with today's talk. All right, guys, the other big kind of high point, or I guess you could also call it low point with this, or another good example, I should say, is the situation of these two individuals, uh, Sacco and Vanzetti. So these are two relatively young men from Massachusetts, uh, recent immigrants. Anybody want to guess what uh, country they're from? Maybe you can recognize the last names a little bit, especially this last name. Where are a lot of immigrants coming from during this time. Italy. Very good. Yeah, they're both Italian. And there was a loose connection, I forgot which one of them, but like one of them had like, you know, family members who were maybe like part of the Communist Party or there's some weird, some weird distant connection there. But, you know, the facts are in around 1920, these two commit a violent robbery in Massachusetts in which someone does get killed in the robbery. But what follows is weird because this trial becomes a a kind of an international sensation and an international event. And the trial takes on like a different life, a life of its own. It becomes less about what they did and the robbery and the person they hurt and more about that they're Italian, that they're Catholic. That they're again maybe communists. That they're maybe anarchists. They may be anarchists, and it you know it's really kind of takes on a life of its own. And even people from Europe and all that were keeping tabs of this very very popular um, trial uh, involving Sacco and Vanzetti. Now it ends pretty uh, brutally in 1927. Uh, they're committed. Uh, they are uh, executed for the their murder and their role in the robbery, but. You know, literally, like, in the trial, the, the judge is, like, calling them names and calling them anarchists. Like, it's just, again, it just highlights how skewed some of the perceptions were uh, during that time, you know, even in, in that kind of setting and stuff. So, again, that is the story of Sacco Vanzetti and, again, some of this anti-immigrant sentiment, this fear of radicalism of the 1920s. Uh, I can pause for a little bit. Does anybody have any questions about Palmer? And sometimes you might see this as the Palmer Raids, again, the Red Scare. Of course, Red kind of... You know, symbolizing Russia, communism, and then Vanzetti and Sacco, you know, kind of a result of that time period and victims of that time period, um, you know, because of that fear of immigrants and so forth. Everybody's good? Okay. Very good. Cool. All right, guys, now a little bit on Prohibition, uh, some more detail. Um, So, again, Prohibition officially goes into effect with passage of the Volstead Act, uh, named after uh, a member of the, I think, the House at the time. Uh, I I forgot his first name, but last name is Bolstead. And so basically, this is what gives the kind of federal government the power to enforce prohibition, right? The banning of sale of alcohol, banning public, you know, bars, things like that. Um, And, you know, the big thing that I want to make sure you have clear, hopefully, is, you know, I know, especially in popular culture and in the media, it seems like more people than ever were drinking in the 20s, especially if you watch movies like The Great Gatsby and all that. And, you know, in in some respects, there's not truth to that, but You know, for some segments of the population, they are probably drinking more than they ever have before. But because of how, you know, um, prominent this law is and how widespread it is, you know, it does result overall in a decline of drinking, especially in the early years of prohibition. Now, and it also depends, right? Like, uh, you know, one simple thing to kind of take into account is what happens to the price of alcohol, right? This is something that's now illegal, at least illegal to produce on a mass scale to sell to the public, right, or to... Uh, give to the public. So do you think the price of something that is recently made illegal and you can't, you know, manufacture it, is it going to go up or is it going to go down, you think, during the 20s? Anybody, you can take a guess. It's okay to get it wrong. Um, That's what we're here for. What do you think? Something illegal. Again, booze is now illegal. So does it get more expensive or less expensive? expensive absolutely because there's more risk involved right if people are running a bar if they're running whatever alcohol rum whiskey doesn't matter they're taking on a lot of risks if they get busted i mean they're looking at jail time all that so you know it better be worth it right uh, to do it And, and of course that causes price to go up so this is why it's kind of skewed based on class like middle upper middle class upper class in a way maybe drinking more than they ever have before but for working class people and all that, in general, uh, drinking numbers did go down during this time. Uh, you also have weird situations where, you know, since the government isn't regulating alcohol anymore, you know, a lot of people are just making booze and then selling it to the public. And uh, I've seen some crazy numbers that, you know, in about that, those 10 years, 10 to 13 years, as many as like maybe a thousand people per year uh, died from drinking kind of like tainted alcohol, Right. From um, you know people putting stuff in there that maybe shouldn't have been, and, and resulted in people getting sick and, and dying and so forth. So uh, kind of fascinating. And again, ultimately, right, it fails. Crimes on the rise. You know, the big last kind of nail in the coffin is uh, the fall of the stock market and the beginning of the depression, 1929, and the belief that hey, if we allow booze again, right, or if we uh, straighten our, our stuff out here, it'll it'll act as a little bit of a you know a pickup to the economy at a time when. You know, jobless rates and all that are an all-time high around that time period. So, again, I always tell students, it's a really fascinating little social experiment. and doesn't quite work out as they envision. And, uh, you know, it would be interesting to see if this ever picks up steam again or something close to it. Um, but, again, it's always a question of enforcement, right? Can you enforce uh, as, as drastic of an act such as this, such as prohibition? So kind of fascinating. Any questions, concerns, or anything I can clear up? No questions. All right. All right, guys. So unfortunately, now we have to talk a little bit about the KKK. Of course, what does the KKK stand for? Anybody know the full name of this group? Ku Klux Klan. Very good. And when did they originate or when were they founded? I want to guess what time period in U.S. history? Roughly. You don't have to know, like, the year or anything. That's, that's okay. But after what big event in U.S. history? We should hopefully at least know that. All on those. It was in the 1860s. Yeah. So about, yeah. Basically, you know, after the Civil War, right? So the KKK is sort of like a remnant. literally founded by a former Confederate officer, a guy named Nathan Forrest, and uh, you know, initially, right, used during Jim Crow or late 1800s to intimidate African Americans, right, to not let them vote, committing atrocities, right, lynchings, all that stuff across the South. Uh, one thing that people find really surprising, and the whole reason we're talking about them today. Is uh, how they fit into this kind of anti-immigrant and these kind of clashing views and uh, ideas of the 1920s, um, and people are really surprised by this. But the the kind of heyday or the prime of the KKK, as far as number of members, is not right after the Civil War. It's not in the 1880s, 1890s. It is the mid 1920s. Uh, I think as of like 1925, there were five million active paying members of the Ku Klux Klan in this country, right, in the United States. And it's kind of crazy because, in a way, what the KKK represents is, you know, a kind of like trying to hold on to a traditional view of America and keeping a very nativistic or nativism, native view of America. Of course, we're not talking about natives as far as Native Americans. This means it's weird, like this movement to kind of keep America American, Protestant, white, things like that. And what's going on is, you know, the influx of immigrants, such as, you know, the Italians, such as these other groups that many deem as, you know, uh, you know lesser, are changing things, right? African Americans moving to the north, changing things. And a lot of people feel threatened by this. So that's kind of why the KKK gets so much popularity in the 1920s. And I just felt like it was important to talk about this because, you know, everybody, or a lot of people know about jazz, know about a lot of stuff from the 20s. Most people have no idea that the KKK was at its peak you know, right around the mid-1920s. Uh, so, so pretty pretty crazy, pretty uh, fascinating. Now, as far as targets and practices, of course, you know, intimidation, violence, murder, burnings. Um, now, again, it doesn't mean they were necessarily more violent than they usually had been, but the kind of targets are changing. You know, to give you an idea, you know, uh, uh, Catholics, right, could potentially be targeted. Women, right? Um, the idea of, like, the flappers, right? And a new type of woman that is... Uh, you know, not so much like the keeper of the home anymore, all that stuff, right? That challenges a lot of these old, you know, white Protestant views of what is America and what is traditionally kind of American and all this stuff. So we always think of maybe African Americans as being the target, and rightly so. But, um, you know, anything basically different, anything non-Protestant, anything uh, non-white that could potentially be targets of the KKK. Uh, Again, Uh, Some of these peaks, I forget what year the uh, demonstration was, but I want to say around 1924, there was a massive KKK demonstration in uh, Washington, D.C. Tens of thousands of members parading through the streets of D.C., and uh, that's kind of the ultimate symbol of, you know, kind of the the peak of the the Klan during that period. Now, the good news is in that same span, basically by the time the Great Depression starts, the KKK is almost, I mean, it's, it's not gone, right? It's still around today. But it is a, a, you know, really small version of its former self or just a shell of its former self. And some of these reasons include a lot of corruption involved in the hierarchy of the KKK. There's a lot of scandals involving leadership and other things. And, uh, you know, thank goodness the decline, the rise and the decline happen almost like at a similar time or right after the other. And, uh, you know, this kind of dies out and the the economy becomes a center thing, uh, you know, throughout the uh, Great Depression and all that. But this weird little instance, again, the KKK kind of exploding with popularity uh, during the 1920s. Any questions? Any thing I can clear up? You're good? Okay. All right, guys. So now how uh, some of these views are affecting immigration policy. So we've seen little kind of like snippets or previews of, you know, American government and their kind of changing views on immigration, right? Some of the earliest examples of that are, you know, in 18, was it was 1882, I think, the Chinese Exclusion Act, right, where Chinese people were basically banned from legal immigration into the U.S. Well, what begins with the aftermath of World War I and then through the 20s is basically immigration policy is going to become stricter and stricter in the United States. And, uh, you know, it also be very heavily biased, and it's really easy to f- uh, see that kind of early on. And uh, you know, this is kind of what this is talking about. So the first thing that's done is in the midst and as the US joins World War I, there wasn't a ton of immigration going on because you know, wars going on and the oceans are a pretty dangerous place to be and all that. But in 1917, Congress enacts a literacy test for immigration into this country. And it's crazy, but if you look at charts and the, the dip that immigration takes after 1917 for the next few years, it's very, very drastic to say the least. And also keep in mind how biased a literacy test can be, right? What's the troubling thing if I'm an immigrant and I have to take a literacy test to get into the U.S.? What's really tough about that? Anybody give me a quick example? You might not know the language. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if I do, it's, you know, probably really, really like, you know, just a little bit of it, right? Like like not very much at all. So, you know, this is one of those things where they're putting in a barrier to... You know, kind of prevent that, right? And to stop immigration to some extent. Uh, Post-World War I, this continues in the shape of two acts. There's actually two of these kind of acts. There's one in 1921, but I'm more going to focus on the one in 1924. What well, basically starts uh, going on is um, the government kind of starts putting caps on legal immigration and also kind of assigning sort of like portions of that immigration, So to give you an example, I think under this National Origins Quota Act, it allowed for like a little bit over 150,000 people per year to be made into legal U.S. citizens. But out of those 150,000, you know, 70 had to be from either Britain, Scotland, or Ireland, right? Uh, 20 could be from Italy. Um, Another 10,000 could be from Greece. So, you know, again, the division of those portions showed a lot of that bias as well. You know, more benefiting and more being... uh, Positive or accepting of people more from the Western, from Western Europe than Eastern Europe or Southern Europe and stuff like that. So you know it's the first time we see almost like these caps on different nationalities and stuff like that. Uh, so really fascinating. Uh, for exemption, um, again, so there is a, a little bit of interesting stuff here. Uh, Mexican and Canadian immigration is exempt from the quotas act. So uh, you know this is really fascinating. But do you have any idea why wouldn't they put a limit on Mexican immigration? or Canadian immigration to some extent, but a little bit more for Mexican immigration. Anybody want to take a guess? It kind of has to do with work and workers, more, more importantly. You know, what, is, uh, so what do some portions of the U.S. rely on, especially the southwest U.S.? I think of places like California and growing grapes, cabbage, avocados, uh, the citrus industry in a place like the Valley, you need a whole lot of people, right, to do those work, to do those agricultural jobs. So they didn't want to put limits on Mexican immigration because that was, you know, that services the cheap labor in a lot of those agricultural industries of those regions. So it will come, you know, it takes about 10 years in the 1930s when they start putting caps and start trying to control that, but not in the beginning. And at first it's kind of just, they let it happen. They let it, the numbers are, are still relatively high. Um, good. Uh, any questions or concern regarding immigration? Um, I remember I used to always have this question, and uh, I think I ended up getting answered by one of my profs or government professors in college or something. But, you know, when it comes to, like, athletes, right, or, uh, you know, maybe you think of celebrities, right? Like, are there are a lot of celebrity actors, stuff like that. Like, how do they become citizens sometimes so quickly, right? And, you know, if you were to use the NBA, think of someone like, you know, Giannis or uh, Luka, right? I forgot, what what's Luka's nationality? He's not Serbian. Yeah, what is he? Croatian no I forgot but you know how do they become uh you know they get nationality or they get citizenship so quick well there's certain stipulations in like uh immigration law where especially if you have a specialized skill uh, for instance if you're like a nuclear physicist right there's only so many of those in the world and they're uh, highly sought after so you know you're kind of put like on the fast track to you know to get citizenship um, of course, if you're an amazing basketball player, the same thing, right? They'll just kind of specialized talents. There's other things also that are weird. Like if you invest in an American business, like a certain amount of money, you kind of are fast-tracked to become a citizen. So immigration, kind of a little funky thing. But that's one way they do it. You know, soccer players also have to kind of go through that all the time too, right? All right, guys, uh, some other stuff. So other than the Socko and Vanzetti trial, um, in 1925, we have a really fascinating trial that takes place in a small town in Tennessee called Dayton, Tennessee. And uh, it challenges and what it kind of serves as, it's kind of weird because the whole thing in the trial is is a little bit silly and there's not much consequence to it necessarily, but what it represents and what it means for kind of greater society is the really important thing. And uh, what this all centers around is a fairly young biology teacher uh, named John Scopes. And uh, John Scopes, uh, I don't think he was even the regular, like, teacher of the class. He was a, I think he was, like, a coach. And he taught some classes, but he had to substitute for a biology class. And he taught a chapter on something that's really, really controversial. Um, again, especially during this time period. But does anybody want to guess what's really controversial about biology in 1925? Kind of has to do with, like, humans and where we come from and stuff like that. Uh, you know, think of religion, things like that. Anybody know? Well, what he taught was the theory of evolution, basically, right? And Darwinism, that you know, humans evolved from primates and from uh, you know, other forms of life into you know, modern humanity and stuff like that. Now, this became a really big deal because there was something in Tennessee called the Butler Act that literally stated that the only kind of thing you could teach uh, in public school was creationism. And if you don't know, again, kind of a fancy way, creationism is basically the traditional kind of Christian teaching of the origins of humanity, right? So again, anybody know what are those names of those first two humans, right, that God created, and the apple and the snake and all that stuff? That's creationism. Anybody remember? What are the names of those two humans? Original sin, all that stuff. Nobody knows? Adam and Eve, right, and kind of that stuff. So, you know, again, uh, John Scopes teaches about evolution, he knew what he was doing, and then uh, eventually, basically, the, he's uh, charged with a misdemeanor for, I forgot the exact, violation of the Butler Act and all that. So what happens in this small town is over the next uh, you know week or the week they have the trial, I think it was a little bit more than a week, actually, it becomes like a big national event. Um, lawyers come in from outside of that town to represent both sides, And it becomes a showdown of, like, modern thinking, science, right, evolution versus fundamentalism, uh, you know, traditional Christianity and creationism. And uh, everybody's kind of infatuated by it. And then the lawyers don't – they add to this because the guy who's kind of uh, prosecuting or helping prosecute is a guy named William Jennings Bryan, a guy who has run for president, who was a secretary of state under Woodrow Wilson. And then the guy defending John Scopes, or one of them, is a guy named Clarence Darrow, who is super popular, one of the most popular lawyers of that time period. And he was also a leader of the Socialist Party, and he had also run for president two or three times, never won. But, uh, you know, it becomes kind of like a big event, and uh, media coverage all over the place, you know, all that stuff. And I'll show you some visuals from it later. But again, it's highlighting how the country is changing, right, and how, you know, some of these changes are being kind of challenged and, uh, uh, you know, are, um, are coming to the surface and stuff like that. So, again, it's called the Scopes trial. Sometimes you might see it as the Scopes monkey trial. And again, that's why here they're being depicted, right? Because, again, the big argument was evolution or creationism. And is it okay to teach evolution in schools and all that stuff, right? That was kind of the big question. All right, guys, this little kind of home stretch uh, at the end focuses along the politics and the political leadership of the 20s. So the main thing you need to know is that the 20s are dominated. In fact, most of the early 1900s are dominated by Republicans, right? Um, Remember, way back since McKinley, McKinley was Republican. Then we had Teddy Roosevelt. Then we had Taft, also Republican. Woodrow Wilson is kind of the one odd man out. And then the next, you know, a few presidents, continuously Republican, 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 until FDR wins in 1932. Now, so why are Republicans dominating? So uh, the first Republican to take over in the 20s, uh, first part of the decade, is uh, Warren G. Harding. And what he kind of preached to the American people is, is kind of telling them what they wanted to hear. And his whole kind of slogan or sort of platform platform was called the return to normalcy. And, you know, that, that kind of summed up a lot of the feeling of a lot of Americans as they were done with World War One, right, done with the 1918 pan, flu pandemic. Um, they wanted things to just kind of go back to just being about domestic issues, about, you know, our own country, right? Let's focus on making the economy better and this and that. And that's what people wanted to hear. Now, unfortunately for Harding, he gets a little bit wrapped up into some scandals. Um, One of his key, I believe it's his attorney general and another uh, of his key kind of advisors get wrapped up in something called the Teapot Dome scandal. I won't get too crazy detailed, but basically they were involved in like some bribes, and this company who wanted access to land in California and Wyoming for oil. And they were given kind of like, you know, bribes and things like that to allow that land to be accessed and to, uh, you know, be uh, drilled for oil. And one of those locations is Teapot Dome, Wyoming, hence why it's called the Teapot Dome scandal. Uh, So he gets, he doesn't get like implicated, but he has to, you know, like force those two guys to resign. I think one of them even faces jail time. And the Republicans take kind of a little bit of a hit. Now the bad thing for Harding is, you know, after that scandal and the dealing with that, he suffers a massive heart attack in 1923 and passes away. So of course, line of succession, uh, his Republican vice president Calvin Coolidge takes over, and then having that year under his belt, Cool, cool, yeah, cool, I was trying to combine his first and last name. Sorry, Coolidge has a lot of the traction needed to win the next presidential election in 1924. So Coolidge getting that last year, and then he wins his own term in 1924. Now, the, the end of the decade is capped by the emergence of Herbert Hoover, who was seen as kind of like a big riser in the uh, Republican Party, very intelligent, had a good amount of experience in government, and uh, you know, seemed like he could probably win the next two elections relatively easily. Of course, what the Republicans had no idea was about to happen, right, is what is about to go down in 1929 when the stock market crashes and all that stuff. What is that really huge event that precedes World War II? The Great Depression, right? So, again, once the Great Depression hit, Hoover kind of becomes the ultimate scapegoat. And, you know, we'll talk about why uh, probably next week. But, uh, you know, Hoover's done. I mean, his political career is done uh, with the Great Depression. And most Americans kind of blame him, uh, you know, for the uh, for how harsh it gets during that that crisis all right guys just real quick a quick overview of some of the policies of these republican presidents right harding coolidge and uh, hoover so they tended to have really high tariffs uh, protective tariffs so the idea was you know again the same feelings of isolation right and not wanting to be wrapped up in world affairs well you also wanted to protect american companies from foreign competition so tariffs really really high Let the American companies, you know, benefit from selling to Americans and, and, you know, just creating wealth that way. So tariffs were very high during the 1920s. Uh, Taxes uh, tended to go down for the most part, um, especially for businesses and things like that. You know, one thing the Republicans will hark on is feeding the economic growth, allowing companies to kind of do their thing. And, uh, you know, stimulating the economy is kind of what they tried to do and wanted to do. Uh, One of the other goals was reducing government spending and reducing the overall size of government. You know, one thing that happened to us during World War One, and it actually happened again in World War II and the Depression, is the government kind of like gets bigger and bigger and has a bigger role to play in American life. So this will um, you know, kind of be reduced a little bit by these Republican presidents of the 20s. But again, they'll all kind of be undone later on with, you know, the Great Depression, the impact that has on unemployment, all those things as well. All right, guys, last couple real quick. All right, so lastly, I'm just focusing on the Democrats. So why do the Democrats keep losing all these national elections, right? Woodrow Wilson, the last one, and they can't seem to kind of get an opportunity. Well, what's going on for the Democrats, especially during the 1920s, is basically the party is kind of transforming. Um, And, you know, the party used to be a party of Southerners and Westerners, but that's really, really changing. And instead, what do you see emerging in the Democratic Party is a lot of urban uh, people, urban middle class people in particular, and this is something that's going to get stronger and stronger, and it kind of starts to show a little bit in the election of nineteen twenty four, even more so in the election of nineteen twenty eight, and uh, you know by the time FDR is voted in, um, you know that's what gives FDR such of you know a power and all that is, you know the view that he's dealing with the depression, and he has the support of the major cities around the country, and so that is why. Anybody know how many presidential elections Franklin Roosevelt won? It's, he's the reason why we have a constitutional amendment, right? Is it 22? And, of course, you and I know, right? How many, pres- how many terms can a president have legally in this country? Two. Very good, two. Anybody know how many FDR won in a row? And that's that he passed away at the beginning of the last one. Uh, if not, he would have been president for, like, 20 years. Uh, but he won four straight elections. So, you know, he's the reason why they made that. Now, part of that is a time. Again, we're dealing with the Great Depression, and then, you know, kind of the tail end of that, or, you know, uh, 10 years, more than 10 years into that, you have the breakout of World War II. So, just kind of a crazy set of events. Um, again, just reiterating here, again, in these two elections, 24 and 28, uh, Al Smith will lose. He's the Democratic candidate. But again, even with Al Smith, the guy who ran for, as a Democrat before, FDR, you see some of the inroads being made with urban uh, voters and stuff like that. You know, if you go back to look at the Hillary Trump election or even to the Biden uh, Trump election, you know, you'll still see some of these elements where, you know, a lot of the cities are are voting Democrat, right? But the countryside voting Republican. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, the political fallout of this stuff is kind of still continuing to modern day and having big, big effects. Uh, But again, kind of cool to see how old this or how long this has been around All right, guys, uh, any questions, concerns over the trials or any of these? Let me stop the, the recording real quick.